And Job has given his final speech in chapter 31. We'll look back to that in a second, but I want to give you a little bit of an introduction and uh, give you the title tonight. So the, the title tonight is Looking for Answers, and uh, my wife has brilliantly come up with this design of asking the why question, like on a Google search kind of thing. And people are doing that more and more now with all kinds of questions, right? And there's, there's all these questions that are floating out there on people's hearts and minds. But probably the biggest question for most people is the question of the problem of evil. This question has been categorized in theological and philosophical circles as a whole area of study. So you can get books on the problem of evil. You can hear messages on the problem of evil. You can hear debates on the problem of evil. You can hear seminars on the problem of evil. But one thing everybody's agreed on is that the problem of evil is a problem. And the problem of evil is real. And we face it each and every day. And for some of us, it hits us harder at some points in our journey of life than others. But it is no less real, no less happening each and every day. Somewhere in the world, someone is suffering. Someone is asking some deep questions. And I wrote in my notes here, I suppose it is safe to say that every human being is looking for answers. There will be times that we, don't, that we don't bother, and you may be at that point in your life. There may be times when you don't care. I, I can remember whole segments of my life where I didn't think about the problem of evil too much. I didn't even really care about it. But as life goes on, it, inevitably, no matter how old you are or how young you are, you're going to run into this problem. It's going to happen for each and every one of us where we're going to look at some deep questions, ask some deep questions, and really be looking for true answers. I mean, that's the bottom line, right? We have questions, but we want true answers. We don't want pie-in-the-sky answers. We don't want answers that, you know, may sound good on the surface, but they're not satisfying in the soul, so to speak. And Job is a book about looking for answers to the problem of evil, to personal loss, to pain and suffering. Job's quest, as we've studied the book, has been undertaken but he's not undertaken the quest as an atheist. Job is a believer. When Job's uh, incident first happened and all this bad stuff happened, he worshiped God. He said, naked I've come into the world, naked I'm going to leave it. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then we watched him on this roller coaster that we can all understand. And he tried to figure out why and he cursed the day of his uh, conception and the day of his birth and he wanted to die and then we'd see a little bit of hope and then we see him kind of go back and and that's what pain and suffering does to us it puts us on a bit of a roller coaster because it's hard job was not an atheist though he he continued to try to question god and lean into god though he was confused about what god was doing or allowing and that's something that we all can say been there, done that many times, right? But my encouragement to you is to do that as a believer. And don't walk away from your faith just because you have unanswered questions. Because if you walk away from your faith, and let's just all be honest tonight, we've all had the temptation, right? To just say, I don't get it, life is too hard, I don't know what God is doing so I'm just going to wave the white flag and I'm going somewhere else and I'll stop going to church and I'll, I'll, and there's a lot of people, let's face it, and you may be there, you may have been there in the past, 
that are angry with God. And they're walking around with a giant-sized chip on their shoulder, and they're angry because they can't figure out why God would allow this, why God would take their loved one. You can fill in the blank. That's what the book of Job is about. And so as we press through the book of Job, we will continue to explore the overall theme, and this is what we named the big theme of the book, the problem of evil and the power of the gospel. And tonight, we'll look at a message called Looking for Answers. This is in my notes. We can all feel bombarded at times by the amount of evil and suffering in the world. Whether it's a prayer request for someone with cancer, a fire that burns seemingly an entire country like Australia, a single home where a family loses everything in a fire. It could be the latest shooting even in a church recently Two men killed, and then they killed the perpetrator in a church in Texas. We can think about the latest terrorist attack, the latest act of hatred on a personal or corporate level, the latest threat from North Korea or Iran. You may have heard that there was a plane crash right here at Butterfield Airport today. Pastor John was walking. He goes walking to get his exercise. He's at the park when the plane went down. Four people dead, no survivors, right here. You could, some of you could maybe throw a Frisbee to the park, and four people are dead. And then, you probably heard on Sunday evening, these uh, teenagers, part of a youth group at North Point and New Beginnings, out just having a little fun before the Martin Luther King holiday, no school the next day, and they, they were doing some ding-dong ditch, as I understand the story, just things that we all probably did. And they picked the wrong house, and there was a man in there who was going through his own stuff, and he chased them in his car. And according to the driver's report, he hit the back of their car, and he, the driver was shocked, 18-year-old driver, that the man would do such a thing. And then the man hit them again, ran them off the road, and killed three of the six passengers in the car. And then we, then we find out that three of the six passengers, some of us know them or know their families, and uh, the pain is unspeakable. Plane crashes, car crashes, so many things. We've been, many of us, personally and deeply impacted by the death of these three teenagers. Uh, Daniel Hawkins, Drake Ruiz, and Jacob Avascu. And I, I was just recently talking to Paul, and if you don't mind me sharing a little bit, Paul, Paul was uh, telling me about a story in his own family for some, from some years ago where uh, one of his family members uh, killed his, uh, his niece. And she was only in her early 30s, and uh, the conviction was that she was murdered. And Paul had to deal with the fallout of the murder of his niece, the dad ends up going to prison, so now the mom is dead. The dad goes to prison. The kids have no parents now. And uh, it turns out that there was drugs involved, and the husband was under the influence at the time, and he doesn't even remember what he did. But he killed his wife. And so now we try to pick up the pieces. And now a man is in prison for probably most of his adult life. And uh, Paul, you shared the story that he's opened his heart to the Lord, which is a great thing, but the pain is there nonetheless. 
And I could go on, and I, I could have you come up, and you could go on, right? The problem of evil is really a problem. And as we reflect on the problem of evil, we must also include the power of the gospel because it is in a blood-stained cross, an empty tomb, and a risen Savior where my hope is anchored. But this doesn't necessarily stop the questions, the confusion, and the heartache. But we have, gr- we have hope, and we grieve with hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, We don't grieve like those who have no hope, so just flip that around. We grieve then with hope. Now, you can choose how you can deal with this problem, and scholars have pointed out that every worldview has to deal with the problem of evil. Even atheism has to deal with the problem. Because if you want to dismiss a creator and hang on to Darwinian evolution, you're still going to have to deal with the problem of evil when it hits at your doorstep unexpectedly. New age religion has to deal with the problem of evil. Eastern religions, those that believe in karma, those that believe in reincarnation, we could go on and on. Every worldview has to face the reality of the problem of evil. And here's my question. Do you want to face it with God or without him? I mean, you know, when Jesus preached that difficult sermon in John 6 and Many people walked away. Many of the disciples walked away. Jesus turned to the 12 and he said, do you want to go away too? And Peter said, Lord, where else will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And I think Peter spoke for a lot of people in saying, I don't don't understand everything you just said about that teaching. I don't understand why you do some of the things that you do. I don't understand why you try to thin the crowds when all these people are coming out to see you and believe in you and want to make you king and you could restore the, the throne to Israel right now and sit on the throne of David. Why don't you just do it? Let's get on with it. I'll sit at your right hand. Somebody else at your left hand. Jesus says, nope. My ways aren't your ways. My timing is not your timing. You call me Lord, then do what I say. And part of what we're going to discover in the book of Job as we're winding down some of the final chapters is that we're going to find our answers in the glory of God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but this is kind of where the book is going. And we're going to be introduced to a new character in the book. His name is Elihu. We have not met him yet. And uh, we're going to learn a little bit about him in these first few verses. Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for each person that's here tonight. May you be glorified in the way that we break down the word of God. May you guide us by your Holy Spirit. Since this is a spirit-inspired scripture, it's for the benefit of your people to grow us in godliness, to make us fully equipped for every good work, everything we face in this life. So please use it for our growth and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, Job's final speech and the final part of his speech is captured in Job 31. And I want you to see how it crescendos. This is 3135 of Job. Job says these words. Oh, that I had one to hear me, Job 3135. Behold, here is my signature, as though he were signing a document now fully uh, typed or filled out. He says, let the Almighty answer me, calls to God, and the indictment which my adversary has written. Surely I would carry it on my shoulder. I would uh, bind it to myself like a crown. I would declare to him the number of my steps like a prince. I would approach him. 
Chapter 31 gives us the final words of Job, of his final speech. In fact, if you look at verse 40 of chapter 31, if you were with us last week, we get the words, the words of Job are ended. <laughs> That's it. Now, Job is going to give us a little sentence when he meets God, starting in chapter 38, and we'll, we'll look at that a little bit more, but this is the last we've heard from Job. The words of Job have ended. Now, what we, those of you who have been troopers and you've been with us for most of the book of Job, the next thing that we would hope to see is we want to hear from God now, okay? We've heard enough from man. That's it. We're done. Let's just have God speak. And that's what a lot of us want in a lot of situations. Enough with the talking heads. Enough with the drama in Washington. Can I get a witness? Uh, right? Well, let's hear from the Lord. Let's hear the, the, the truth, the one who is pure light. Let's, let's put aside all the nonsense and trying to figure out who, what, where, and when. Let's hear from the Creator. That's coming. But you're going to have to wait a little bit longer. Because before we hear from the Creator, we're going to hear from a man named Elihu. It says, then these three men, these comforters of Job, this is Job 32.1, ceased answering Job. Now, Job's final words were in verse 40 of chapter 31. And they did not answer Job, the three so-called comforters that we've met in the book already, because he was righteous in his own eyes. If you have a New Living Translation, it says, Job's three friends refused to reply further to him because he kept insisting on his innocence. In fact, Job 31 is a resume of Job's righteousness. He goes through his life and he says, Lord, this is what I did for the poor. This is what I did for the orphan. This is what I did for the widow. This is what I did for my servants. This is what I did for my family. Why, oh why, have you allowed this to happen to me? Another way you could put it is, Lord, what did I do wrong? What am I missing? Have you ever had those kinds of conversations with God? Let's all be honest, whether you articulated or voiced them or not, you were at least thinking them. What did I miss? Didn't you see what I did this last week? I read my Bible. And it wasn't church. I, I read one of those devotional verses that you get on your phone. Can I get away? Yes, I'm really spiritual now. I read an entire book of the Bible. Yeah, it was Habakkuk, three chapters. Yeah, but I told my friends it was an entire book. I'm getting real spiritual now, Lord. Did you see how I responded to that person? The way I always respond every time I changed my tune, I didn't get mad. I, did you see? And then we want to link that to if something bad happens, we're trying to discover. We go through our resume often with God. And Job did that. And Job even said, I, I need an answer. I want an answer, please. And the three friends who we've heard through throughout the book, they don't respond. They have nothing more to say to Job. But there is one more voice that will chime in, and we are introduced to him in verse 2. His name is Elihu. But the anger of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, burned against Job. Now, there have been a lot of commentators that have said that Elihu is an interpolation in the book, and that means that they think he was added by 
the author of the book of Job as an afterthought and maybe wasn't part of the original. And to me, that's just a bunch of nonsense from liberal scholarship, trying to be smarter than the text is. Some say, well, it's because, you know, there's, it, it seems a little abrupt. This is the natural place now for God to answer Job. Why Elihu? I don't know for sure, but I will tell you this. It's here for a reason. And so we're going to trust that the Lord has a purpose. In fact, some have called Elihu God's forerunner because in some ways he lays the groundwork for God's words that are coming to Job. And the first thing that we learn about Elihu is that he is angry. <laughs> it says, but the anger of Elihu burned against Job. The first thing we hear about Elihu, before even we hear about his genealogy, is that he is angry with a capital A. And I have to tell you that there's probably no topic like the problem of evil that stirs more anger on, in people. Amen? Either it's your anger or the anger at the so-called people who are trying to wax eloquent about what they think they know about the universe to everything in between. And if it happens personally to us, then we can be angry, right? And we, we all go through that. And so an the anger of Elihu burned. We will see this two more times in the following three verses. In four verses, in, chap in uh, chapter 32, verses 2 through 5, there are four references to the anger of Elihu. He is a mad dude. <laughs> Angry. And I know that enough of us walking the planet, if I look at a room like this tonight, I would have to say that some of you deal with anger issues. Some of you are getting better with it. As a young man, I will tell you, I had an anger issue. And I was angry at a lot of things. I was angry at a broken family. I was angry at a dad that disappeared. I had a chip on my shoulder, and I tried to, to uh, satisfy you know, my desire to prove that I was worth something by you know, sports and the gym and, and you name it. But, I, but there was an anger. And that anger would come out at different times. One of the times was... I was trying to change a tire in my sister's driveway, and the jack was not cooperating with me. Now, the problem was not the jack. The problem was the non-mechanical gifts <laughs> that I inherited. And I took the jack, and I'm talking about like a car jack, and went, <laughs> and I set the world record for distance. And throwing, yeah, that's one example. There's many I could give you, but they're not pretty. But as the Holy Spirit got a hold of my life, as I realized that God's the father of the fatherless, as I realized that my backstory wasn't really so much about me, it was about other people making their own decisions, as I learned what my Heavenly Father had for me and how he showed me to be a godly man through other men in the church that I watched, and I grew in my faith, that anger began to recede. But there is such a thing in the Bible as righteous anger, and that particular anger is seen in the life of Jesus. When Jesus got angry, it was righteous anger. When he was angry 
at the unbelief of the religious leadership when he turned over the tables in the temple. When Jesus got angry, it was a righteous anger. And some would argue that Elihu's anger here is righteous. Now, the book of James says that the anger of man, James 1.20, does not achieve the righteousness that God desires, James 1.20. And the verse before that says, let every one of us be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And what we find out about Elihu is he's been waiting for 31 chapters to talk. <laughs> talk about reasons to be angry. All right, that's enough. I'm not waiting anymore. And we're going to find out that Elihu is mad at everybody. Notice in verse 2, he's the son of Barakel. There's an alternate spelling in the NIV where there's a K instead of an E-H. Just take a look at that word, Bible students. So if you have the K, it's the word Barak, B-A-R-A-K, and an E-L ending, okay? The word Barak is the Hebrew word for bless, and L is the name of God. So you got a Hebrew lesson there. It's bless God. So this man has a very significant name, uh, and I'll, I'll give you the exact definition in a moment. And he comes from the clan of the Buzzites. All right? They had a lot of short haircuts in their family. You always knew when they were coming into the restaurant, everybody had a buzz haircut. I would imagine with his anger problems that his dad used to maybe buzz around the house and get angry. You know? Yeah, all right. Can I think of any more buzz jokes? Uh, Buzz Lightyear, okay. That's enough of that. But notice he's the only one of the four people who speak into Job's life that's ever given a genealogy in the book. Some say that's because he's young and has no established uh, you know, history with, of which to lean on. And others say it's because there's some significance to who this man is. He is Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, of the family of Ram. And commentators believe that Ram connects uh, him right back to Abraham. And there's a connection to the children of Israel. Notice Elihu's anger burned against Job. His anger burned because he, Job, justified himself before God. Elihu, Elihu's name means, he is my God and Barakel, his dad, means bless, O God, or God has blessed. But Elihu means he, and there's that L again. See that E-L beginning? He is my God. It's very close to the word Elijah, or the name Elijah. He is my God. I want to make an application point here as it relates to the problem of evil. And I mentioned this in the opening remarks. If you do the problem of evil, saying he is my God, it's much easier than doing the problem of evil by saying, I don't believe in anything. And so I think the name is instructive here. It's a fitting name because it points to the true God and says that the true God is my God. In the famous Psalm 23, David writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now the rest of the, the beautiful psalm there 
is anchored to the very first words of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And as a consequence of that, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He puts me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my, my enemies. He anoints my head with oil. My cup overflows. You got it? Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, that's what we're talking about. If I stood up before a group of people, and, and Pastor John and I uh, have done this many times, Pastor Mike and all the other pastors here, and if we read Psalm 23 at a memorial service, we've often had to say to the group, and we say it with the hope that they will come to know the Savior you can claim the rest of Psalm 23 if you know the shepherd. And Elihu's name means to me that one of the ways to navigate the problem of evil is to decide that God is your God no matter what. And that is not the easiest thing to do. Because some of us have tendencies to run from just about every problem that we've ever encountered. And if you're a runner, God is trying to teach you how to be a stayer. God is trying to teach you how to move into him when everything is not the way you think it ought to be. Because in the equation, the name he is my God means he's my God and I'm not his God. Amen? Now I say that with the fear and trepidation it deserves because I know as well as you know that life is going to be hard at times. I'm going to be confused at times. I'm not going to have all the answers. In fact, in the light of the tragedy that happened with those teenagers and coming up here with the chapter that was ahead of us, I was like, oh God, I don't even know if I can do this. Who am I to try to speak to these issues? What do I really know about this problem? What do I really know about how to communicate such things as this? But here we are. And so this man, Elihu, comes into the picture. And he's angry. And before you get angry at Elihu for being angry, <laughs> let's see why he's mad. You ever gotten angry at someone for being angry? You're like, why are you angry? Now I'm angry. <laughs> it's kind of like when you laugh and other people are laughing. When you see someone just laughing uncontrollably, you just want to laugh, right? You have no idea why they're even laughing. And when everybody's angry, you kind of just, yeah, that's right. Something's wrong around here. I just know it. <laughs> you hear about the story about the kids, they put, uh, what is that, really smelly cheese on their grandpa's mustache? What is that, Limburger or Worcester or whatever it is? And grandpa woke up from a nap and he went, it stinks in here. And then he got up from the bed and he said, this room stinks. I stink. And then he walked out in the living room. He says, this house stinks. Then he walked out the front door. The whole world stinks. Somebody put some smelly cheese on your mustache, Grandpa. Recently, I heard a comedian say, why should I pray to God to find my keys when he didn't even get involved in the Holocaust? 
I can't pray to a God who didn't stop the Holocaust. But isn't it interesting to think about that one because who caused the Holocaust? Did God do that? I don't think so. I've seen some of the footage and I see other people perpetrating those crimes. I know it brings up some deep questions, but Ravi Zacharias put it this way. He says, moral evil is not only a problem around us. It's a problem within us. And I'm going to take you to the things that we talked about with the kids that were ran off the road. And immediately our prayers and thoughts go to those families that lost, and they should. But now... We have a perpetrator. And now we gotta, we got to deal with, well, how do we look at that man now? And how, how do we fold the gospel into that equation? I've heard from some people that there's forgiveness being articulated even in these early moments towards that man. Elihu is angry. There's no easy answers to these questions, but he's angry because of the honor of God. You see, the New Living Translation says he was angry because Job refused to admit that he had sinned and that God was right in punishing him. Elihu feels compelled to speak to defend God's honor. Would to God that that's the reason that I get angry. If you want to define what righteous anger is, it should be around the honor of God. Amen? See, most of the time that we get angry, it's because we feel like we've been offended. It's been a personal affront to me. I'm offended. You were mean to me. How dare you? But what if your anger only came out when God was being dishonored? What if, it, what if the honor of God was the main thrust behind the reasons that we might get righteously indignant? Well, his anger burned, verse 3, against his three friends, Job's three friends, so-called friends or comforters, because what? They had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. Now, some of you are thinking, what do you mean they found no answer? They've been talking for 30 chapters. Each of them had three speeches. They go on and on and on and on. What do you mean they have no answer? Well, have you noticed there's people, some people who do a whole lot of talking, <laughs> But there's no answer in there. No, no compelling answer, no substantive answer, no answer that would really excite us and make, oh, that okay, right? And this issue brings up those similar kinds of feelings. Elihu is mad at Job because he feels that Job has kind of said, God's wrong and I'm right. He's mad at the three friends because they've shut their mouth and they should have shut Job's mouth. And in the ancient world, if you silenced someone in a debate, you were seen as the winner. It's kind of like this. If I was able to debate somebody and silence my enemy so that he had no argument, no comeback, then I was seen as winning the debate. And Elihu says, by you guys not responding to Job's word, words in Job 31, which is the final three chapters, you have essentially waved the white flag and acted as if Job is correct. One writer compared Job to the Pharisee in Luke 18 who, 
you know, says, I'm grateful that I'm not like other men and like this, this guy next to me and I do this and I do that. And he justified himself before God. And in one sense, that's what Job is doing. But in another sense, Job can't be condemned as a Pharisee because Job was a good man. So this is a tough one. It seems, says one writer, that Elihu's anger is in measure akin to the anger of the Lord. God's zeal for his own glory translated itself into Elihu's jealousy for God's glory. It would be good if we too shared Elihu's indignation more deeply than we do. For it is the glory of God in his holiness and majesty that is a major part of Job's answer as we come to the end of the book. Remember, God will start asking Job questions, right? At the end of the book. And Job is going to find his answers in the glory and in the face of God. And that's where we're going to answer the problem of evil. Because this world is not all there is. Because God is working a bigger plan. At the end of the book, God will correct uh, Job and ask Job to pray for his three friends. But Elihu is not corrected and not even addressed. It may speak of the fact that Elihu was right, even though some of what he says is close to the others. A couple of quotes. Though much of what Elihu says in the following chapters is similar to Job's comforters, it is also different in this respect. He does not assume that all suffering is punishment from past sins. He teaches that misfortune may befall a person in order to awaken him to some wrongful attitude or unconscious error and thus keep him from taking a wrong course. Another major difference in his teaching is the emphasis that suffering may be an expression of God's mercy more than his wrath. With these, Elihu makes a significant contribution to the core issues of the book, namely how the righteous should respond to suffering. Through Elihu, the author presents some major insights into God's use of suffering. Also, the importance of Elihu's role among the various speakers should not be overlooked. It is attested in the fact that he delivers four speeches, one more than each of the three comforters. Jones puts it succinctly when he says, quote, the friends said that Job was suffering because he had sinned. Elihu says that Job has sinned because he was suffering. Do you get the difference? See, Elihu is basically saying, Job, once you began to suffer, that's when you went wrong. That's when you began to accuse God. That's when your mouth began to speak sinful things. And oh God, help us in those times. Oh God, help us when we don't get it and it doesn't fit with our plan or our view of God. And now all of a sudden, we've got to deal with our emotions, our deep thoughts, our questions, our uh, Temptations to wave the white flag, to walk away, you can fill in the blank. And who could blame Job on a human level? How much more could one person suffer and get silence back from heaven and get poor comfort from so-called friends? At what point does a man just simply break and say, it's too much? Johnny Erickson Tata was being interviewed by Greg Laurie on a recent broadcast and Greg asked her the question. He said, she's been, in a, she's been a quadriplegic for 50 plus years. Now she has cancer. And Greg said to Johnny, Johnny, uh, did it bother you? Did Romans 8.28 bother you? 
And she said in the first three years, she was so devastated by the diving accident that made her a quadriplegic that she, she said she was a disaster. But she said afterwards, Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good to those who love God and those who are called, what? According to what? His purpose. Now, she said, you have to keep reading. For whom God foreknew, he also pre predestined to become conformed. Now, think of that word. That word conformed means to form. To be conformed has the idea of pottery and shaping and moving, right? So it's God's purpose, being conformed to God's purpose, and being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. God's goal in working all things together for good is to make you like the good one, Jesus. How much molding and conforming do you think God has to do to make that happen in you? Well... Ask the people who know you the best. <laughs> and then ask yourself. So how much does God have to use the refiner's fire, so to speak? And again, I will say, I say these things with fear and trepidation. But to make us more like the Lord, what does he have to do? Sometimes when I'm suffering, I feel like such a baby. <laughs> When it was over there, it was okay, but now it's here. Why is it here? I don't understand. How long? How long will it be? Why? What did I do? What did I miss? What's going on? You, you know. Turn over to 1 Peter. <laughs> All right, so the famous apologetics verse, 1 Peter 3.15, is set in a, a context of suffering. Peter's writing to a suffering church. M many of you have studied that. 1 Peter 3, take a look at uh, beginning of verse 13. <clears throat> Actually, uh, 14. Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, 1 Peter 3, 14, you are blessed. Don't fear their intimidation and don't be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord, where? In your hearts. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for what? The hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence. Keep reading. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. For Christ, if you want the ultimate example, also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. If you just peek over a few verses before this, in 1 Peter 2, in verse 23, it says, while being reviled, Jesus did not revile in return, 2.23. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross 
so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. I want you to think about this next verse in the setting of suffering. For you were continually straying like sheep, maybe when everything was easy and good, but now, what's happened? You have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Suffering has a way to drive me back to Jesus. I don't like saying that, (laughs) but I know it's true. I know how deeply I need him. I want to show you one more in 1 Peter. It's 4.13. 1 Peter 4.13 says, I actually go back to verse 12. (laughs) Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree, 1 Peter 4.13, that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also in the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name, For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? If it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Back to Job and we'll finish it. There are certainly layers here of, you could call it a theology of suffering that aren't the most pleasant things to talk about. They're not, if I were to pick a sermon series on a Sunday morning, I wouldn't say, hey, I got a great idea. Let's do a series on suffering. It'll pack them in, baby. Right? Boy, they're going to come and be knocking down the door. But if we don't, if you've never heard 1 Peter 3 and 1 Peter 4 read to you, if you've never studied the book of Job and the news report hits like a thud on your front porch unexpectedly or all of a sudden you get bad news or there's a cancer uh, diagnosis or you fill in the blank, all the things we've talked about, what good does it do if we ignore this part of our Bibles? What good does it do if we don't have a full orb theology on what God really says about life? Everybody with me? See, this is where it helps us to understand that there are layers to what God is doing, and even though I don't get it, and sometimes I'm hurt and confused, still God is God. He is my God. Now, Elihu, 32.4 of Job, had waited to speak to Job because they were years older than he. In the ancient cultures, the young always deferred to their elders, and there's uh, implications of that throughout the book. And so they would wait, and they would let the elders speak, and they would, they would kind of wait their turn and make sure that they were being respectful. And so Elihu did all that. He waited, and he waited, and this tells us that he was there hearing all the banter, 
And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of the three men, here it is again, he got upset. His anger burned. Elihu did the right cultural thing by waiting. He did what we call a biblical thing. We are quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. But as he listened, he didn't hear one good answer. <laughs> Some years ago, a friend of mine was outside of the Orange Mall, and he was witnessing to people. And this big strapping dude walks out the door of the Orange Mall, and my friend says, hey, I'd like to tell you about the gospel. And this guy got in my friend's face and said this, tell me something new, man! Tell me something new! And he was like, in my friend's face, like this close, like spitting in his face. I don't want to hear about that, Jesus. Tell me something new. And he went storming off. And my friend was like, whoa. But can I tell you something? The answer to the question is not new. God's answer to the problem of evil is Jesus. And we've been sharing together how the book of Job foreshadows redemptive suffering and that the greater Job is Jesus, the most innocent sufferer who suffers on our behalf, inexplicable. If you're standing there at the cross on that darkened day and you're trying to figure out why the Son of God, who opened the eyes of the blind, unstopped the ears of the deaf, raised the dead, turned the water into wine, stopped the sea, cast demons out of people, and you try to explain why he's on that cross, there's only one explanation. God so loves you. That the blood-stained cross is God's answer to the problem of evil. And I've told people many times over the years, one of the reasons, one of the big reasons I'm a Christian is because Jesus Christ entered into my pain. He didn't just wind up the universe and say, lots of luck, humans. Let's see how you mess everything up. Oh, we did that. But then he came on a rescue mission to enter into our pain. That's our God. That's why I say the Lord is my shepherd. That's why I say he is my God. Not Buddha, not Zoroaster, not some universal one or whatever you want to talk about. Jesus is my God. And of all the things that I don't understand, here's what I do know. After God spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, he, he is in these last days spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Recently, I went back to listen to a little Fernando Ortega. You guys remember Fernando Ortega? This is back in the day. He was a worship leader, had a lot of solemn songs, but he made the song famous. In the morning when I rise. In the morning when I rise. In the morning when I rise. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Give me Father, thank you so much for the hope of Jesus Christ. He is the gospel. 
the good news, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. The fact that he has a current ministry to his people, ever living to intercede for us, coming to us in our moments of despair and need, a throne of grace, pouring out grace, stabilizing grace. Oh Lord, we all have our file of questions. But I hope the biggest questions of this life have already been answered for this group at the cross. That's why we celebrate the cross. That's why we celebrate your great love for us. That's why we celebrate Jesus' incredible sacrifice. And what we know is that evil and suffering, if they do anything, one thing they do is drive us to you. We talked about that. But another thing that they do is help us not get too comfortable in a world destined for decay. We put so much stock in the temporary, and it's understandable, Lord. This is what we know, and yet it's temporal. Oh, God, would you help us to have an eternal perspective, a gospel perspective, to enjoy the life you've given us, to count our blessings each day, to be in awe of the fact that we are heirs with Christ according to the promise. We're going to inherit a kingdom prepared for us from the beginning or foundation of the world. Names written in a book of life. We're going to see our God face to face. We're so grateful, Lord. Help us not forget all that we have so that the enemy, this world, the problems that we face don't rob us of the joy and the hope we have in Jesus. If you haven't met Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this would be a great time to pray. Ask him to save you. Thank him for what he did for you. Turn from your sin and trust in him. For some of you, this may be the time to return to him. Maybe it's you've been in a season of suffering and it's driving you back to him and he'll, he'll open up his arms like the father of the prodigal. He loves you so much. And if you're a Christian here and you've been going through this study in Job, my prayer is that God will minister his grace his hope to you, his encouragement to you that the best is yet to come for all of us who are in Christ.